0: Hello and welcome to Grand Final History. In this episode we go back to 1923, the 27th season of the VFL. Before we get into the footy, let's have a look at what was going on in 1923 around the world and locally. In January, King Tut's grave was opened in Egypt, astonishing the world with treasures, gold and more. In Germany, the hyperinflation that had kicked off in 1922 became even more destructive. In July, the number of German marks needed to purchase a single American dollar reached 353,000, more than 200 times the amount needed at the start of the year. It would eventually reach $4 trillion in November. Also in November, Adolf Hitler led an unsuccessful attempt to overthrow the government. Sadly, this won't be the last we hear of him. In September, an earthquake magnitude 7.9 Hit Tokyo and Yokohama in Japan, killing more than 140,000 people. Construction of Parliament House, or the old Parliament building now, began in Canberra in August. It would be ready for use in 1927, which meant for now, Federal Parliament continued to meet in Melbourne. 1923 also saw the start of radio broadcasting in Australia, which in time would become pivotal to the promotion and growth of football and the VFL. Today, with our smartphones, PCs, TVs, everything else all connected, it's hard to imagine what a revolutionary change radio was in a time where newspapers and magazines were the only mass media. You only got the news when the printed page could physically reach you. The first attempt to launch broadcast radio in Australia started with sealed sets, where listeners paid a subscription to have radio sets sealed to specific stations. Not surprisingly, this failed and an open system was launched in 1924. The owners of newspapers were not enthusiastic about the arrival of radio. Some claimed that it was likely that broadcasters would pirate print news stories without providing compensation to the sources. They were assured by the government, rather naively according to some, that this would not occur. The early days of radio were a bit like the early days of the internet. Early adopters had to get their hands on new technology devices, and the range of content was initially limited. But there were entrepreneurs who could see the business opportunities. Football broadcasts would start in 1925, so more on that in future episodes. But the biggest event in Melbourne in 1923 was the police strike. Many police were frustrated with poor paying conditions and the lack of a pension at the end of their service. On top of this was an intense dislike for Police Commissioner Alexander Nicholson, thought by some only to be appointed because of a friendship with Chief Secretary of the Victorian Parliament. Nicholson inflamed an unhappy environment by appointing special supervisors, effectively spies monitoring the average police officer's performance. Things came to a head on October 31, the eve of the Melbourne Cup Racing Carnival. By Friday the 3rd and Saturday the 4th of November, riots and looting broke out in Melbourne CBD. There were three deaths, trams were overturned and dissenting police officers were confronting each other using firearms in the street. The Premier requested troops from the Federal Government but Army and Navy forces were not deployed until Sunday evening. Volunteer special constables were sworn in under the command of General Sir John Monash and given the job of getting the city back under control. Many of the volunteer constables would end up becoming police members themselves and 636 police who had gone on strike were banned from ever rejoining the police. The rioting and looting was quickly attributed to Melbourne's criminal element by all of Melbourne's newspapers, but subsequent court records show that most of the offenders who were apprehended were young men and boys without criminal histories, clearly trying to take advantage of the circumstances. The subsequent Royal Commission into the strike, led by Sir John Monash, recommended higher wages, better conditions and a pension, which might have avoided the strike and the riots from ever starting had they been implemented earlier. The Commonwealth Government wanted it all forgotten prohibiting the export of any newsreel footage of the anarchy, lest the rest of the world see Australia's shame. So after all that drama, let's focus on the football, and 1923 saw the entry of one of the VFL's most famous characters, when Lou Richards was born in Abbotsford in March. He will make his debut in 1941, so we will pick up his playing and long media career in future episodes. Focusing on events that impacted season 1923, we can start with the news in January that the VFA and VFL formalised the agreement to ensure players needed a clearance to move between either competition. The agreement was set for five years, and was expected to reduce the increasing cost of player salaries as players had been taking advantage of the opportunities offered by clubs. Without a clearance, a player would have to stand down for three years, which would end most careers. There was even an agreement to meet twice per year to discuss matters of common interest. We will see how long the peaceful relationship is maintained. April saw the clubs returning to training, with new recruits lining up at Edge Club keen for a game. The grounds were noted as being hard and in need of some rain. Perhaps that's why some players chose to wear their boots for some time before inserting stops. St Kilda's Dave McNamara... One of the standout players of the era was preparing for his 19th and final season he wrote an article for the sporting globe on how he had kept himself fit and prepared for the game over all those years he advised moderation in drinking while recognizing a couple of glasses of beer after some hard training would do no harm but too much drink was not a good thing and as for smoking he said inhaling of cigarette smoke was no good for the lungs and he advised players to leave smoking alone as much as possible in winter. He did admit to taking up smoking himself in the last couple of years, but preceding Bill Clinton by about 70 years, McNamara said that he never inhaled. The Junior Football League looked to strengthen their ties with the senior VFL competition by renaming their teams to align with the VFL clubs. For example, the Carlton Junior Team would become known as the Carlton Second Eighteen and St Kilda would return to their traditional red, white and black this year, after switching to red, yellow and black during World War I. These were the colours associated with Belgium, while red, white and black were, at the time, Germany's colours. But now the war had been over for five years, so it must have seemed safe to return to the traditional St Kilda club colours. Jack Elder was appointed as the umpire's coach at the end of April. This would, amongst other duties, involve him going to different matches and observing the umpire's performance. Then, at a meeting during the week, he would point out mistakes and provide advice to help bring greater uniformity to decision making. Some might say that this is still a challenge faced by umpires today. And to show that some things just never change, champion Fitzroy player Percy Parrott conducted a review of the state of the game in the Herald with the headline, The game may be faster, but is the standard any higher? New coaches had been appointed this year at South Melbourne, with Charlie Panham leaving Collingwood, but without a clearance, he would be a non-playing coach. Bert Taylor, who had played his last game for Fitzroy in their 1922 Premiership, took over as non-playing coach at Geelong. He was a police constable and he had been stationed in Geelong for a couple of years already, so the travel each week to play for the Maroons had got too much. But Fitzroy would still not give him a clearance to play for Geelong, so he too would be a non-playing coach. It had been one of the driest years on record. With no rain at all recorded in Melbourne for all of April, Richmond's captain, Dan Minogue, had a unique perspective when discussing the playing surface, when he said, quote, The hardness of the grounds at the present reminds me of the frozen grounds in France, on which we had many a good game. End quote. Many of the players in this era had very different life experiences with their service in World War I compared to the modern player. The Sporting Globe's season preview anticipated an exciting year with more interest than ever before. Even the practice matches had been watched by thousands, and these games were reported to have been far more serious affairs than in previous years. League Vice President Charles Brownlow issued an official message to players, urging them to play with vigour and strength, and to play fair. When predicting who would win the flag, the football record suggested seven clubs considered themselves certainties and two, thought they would give it a shake. The grounds had been improved with new facilities at Essendon, Collingwood had provided a new entrance for visiting teams, and the MCG had a stand in the outer rebuilt. But one of the new developments at all grounds were new scoreboards erected by the football record that would allow spectators to keep track of the quarter-time scores of all games. The football world was becoming more connected. An estimated 100,000 people attended the four league games on the opening round. Fitzroy had the honour of unfurling their premiership flag before they took on Carlton at their Brunswick Street home ground. The locals would have started to get worried at quarter time when the Blues had kicked five goals won while the Maroons only had one goal won on the board. Surely the dread premiership hangover was not going to strike so soon. But the Frowns turned to smiles by the end of the game as Fitzroy had a comfortable 23-point win. South Melbourne lost to Collingwood Richmond beat Melbourne at the MCG by just five points, and Essendon had a comfortable win against St Kilda, while Geelong had the bye. The season was underway. Like the previous year, Essendon were the front runners early on. They won their first four games, even though they played rounds two, three, and four away from home. The same olds were using a mosquito fleet, with eight players standing only 5 foot 6 inches, or 167 centimetres but they also had six players over six feet, or over 180 centimetres, which was considered tall in that era. The first four rounds also saw St Kilda with a good start, with three wins, while South were on the bottom of the ladder with four losses, and the usually strong Carlton only had one win. In May, the Sporting Globe published an interview with Jock McHale, now into his 12th year as Collingwood coach, with plenty more to come. While the observations may be from about a 100 years ago, some of them are as true now as they were then. Every coach must study the temperament of every player. But training was more limited in this semi-professional era. Just two nights a week and, on a Tuesday night, there might be a little match practice and players kept moving for about half an hour followed up by 20 minutes of marking and passing practice. And McHale did not mind his players having an ale so long as they did not wash themselves in it. But he thought whiskey was as bad as drink as possible and players should stay away from it. On a more serious note, May also saw a formal complaint by umpire H. Petrie, who said that the St Kilda vice president, Mr A.D. Grant, had abused him after the St Kilda-Collingwood game, saying, quote, You rotter! We played you and the Collingwood team. The investigation committee found that Mr Grant was guilty of improper conduct and disqualified him from holding any office in any league club at the pleasure of the league. Mr. Grant was not pleased, and instructed his solicitor to write to the league, insisting the action be rescinded. The league would not change their mind, and it would seem Mr. Grant did not follow through with his threat of an injunction. In June, there was a report in the Herald of potential interest in Australian football in France. Mademoiselle Bastide had seen the diggers playing the game during World War I and had written to the league asking for a copy of the rules, suggesting that the Rouen rugby team might prefer the Australian game to the brutal rugby. The league had to find someone to translate the rules to French, but it would seem that the opportunity for international expansion is yet to reveal itself. By round eight at the end of June, Essendon and Fitzroy were on top of the ladder with just one loss each. St Kilda had started the season well but lost three games in a row and Geelong and Richmond were on the bottom of the ladder with just two wins from their seven games. At the end of June there was an interstate game against South Australia in Adelaide that the South Australians won easily 13 goals 14 to Victoria 6 goals 9. On the same Saturday a second Victorian team hosted a New South Wales side at the MCG where 16,000 people watched a surprisingly close victory by Victoria 14 goals 18, to New South Wales on 13 goals 8. And a representative team was also sent by the VFL to play a combined Ballarat team, where the VFL team had a three-goal win. In early July, the Herald published a cartoon showing that Geelong might benefit from selecting a black cat as a mascot in their game against Carlton. This was prompted by a reserves game the previous week, where Collingwood attributed their victory to a black cat that followed them onto the field. Well... Geelong then did beat Carlton, moved themselves off the bottom of the ladder, and the Cat mascot stuck. I've included a copy of the cartoon on the grandfinalhistory.com.au website if you want to see where Geelong and the Cats all started. By the end of July, 12 rounds had been played, and the season was becoming impossible to predict. Geelong had been on the bottom of the ladder, but now we're just one game out of the four. Essendon were comfortably on top with nine wins, but Fitzroy, who were second, had just lost three games in a row. The Round 13 game between Essendon and Carlton became a scandal for Carlton when the club suspended three players, Bert Boriomo, George Bolt and Jack Morrissey, and they sacked one of their trainers, Stan Keast. The players were barred from the mid-season trip to Sydney, planned for their bye round. The reason for all this was a punch-up between some of the players and a Carlton committee member at a post-game event after a heavy loss at Essendon. It must have been supremely embarrassing for the Blues to have their internal troubles come to a head while they were being hosted by long-time rivals Essendon. Morrissey would not play for Carlton until 1925. George Bolt left the Blues and played with Hawthorne in their first season in 1925, then joined the other newcomers north for two seasons in 1926 and 27. We'll learn more about these expansion clubs in a couple of episodes. Bert Boriomo's crime had been to criticise his captain coach, Horry Clover. He refused to play for Carlton again, but the Blues refused to give him a clearance until 1926, when he played one season for Richmond. It was not a happy season for Carlton. After Round 16, there were two games left in the season. Essendon was still on top, and Fitzroy had benefited from their bye, which broke their run of losses. They had won three games in a row and were comfortably second. St Kilda were third ahead of Geelong, both on eight wins, and they would have been thinking about finals, but South Melbourne on seven wins and Collingwood on six wins still held out hope of making the final four. In round 17, Collingwood kept their slim hopes alive with a win over Fitzroy, while Geelong lost by just two points against Essendon. Geelong lodged a protest saying that the umpire had not signalled time off in the second and final quarter when the ball was out of bounds and Geelong were kicking with the wind. The timekeepers agreed that about 90 seconds had been lost in this last quarter alone. Geelong requested that the game be replayed, but their protest was dismissed. St Kilda had the bye and just had to watch all of this unfold. Round 18, the last round, would define the final four. And the potential outcomes had more complexity in combinations than almost any previous season. Collingwood had a better percentage than St Kilda, South Melbourne or Geelong. And they were playing bottom of the ladder Melbourne. A win would get them back in the four. Geelong were playing Carlton at home. A win should see them in the four, but if they lost and Collingwood beat Melbourne, that might end their season. And South were playing St Kilda. Whoever won that game would make it into the four, but the loser may not be out of the four. And while neither Carlton nor Melman could make the four, most teams want to win their last game of the season regardless of where they are in the ladder. And if they can stop their opponents getting into the finals, well, that just adds something to the mix. While all this was going on, the team at the top of the ladder, Essendon, had, coincidentally, a bye. They could just sit back, watch the drama unfold, knowing that they had the right of challenge locked up. South Melbourne versus St Kilda at the Lakeside Oval was the match of the round. St Kilda's veteran captain coach, Dave McNamara, was in his last season. He had made his debut against South Melbourne 17 years earlier in 1905, kicking his first goal in a win for the Saints. Roy Kazaley was a household name. He had started his career with the Saints before moving to South in 1921, where the Up There Kazaley Corps was born. He'd been reported the week before against Richmond, but was cleared to play. 50,000 people are estimated to have somehow squeezed themselves into the small ground, with fences crumbling and supporters rushing in. Others sat on the roof of the grandstand. Many squeezed onto the ground when the boundary fences gave way, some even onto the playing surface, but that did not impact the game. Perhaps it was fortunate that rain fell about two o'clock and kept some spectators away, The crush may have even been worse. It was reported to be the largest crowd at a game outside of finals, with 10,000 people estimated to have been turned away. Despite all the potential dangers of overcrowding, the only injury reported was one man who hurt his finger when the fence gave way. After all of the build up and the immense crowd, South led all day. The Saints got to within seven points at three quarter time. But a strong last quarter saw South Melbourne win by 20 points. They were through to the finals. St Kilda then learnt that Geelong had easily beaten Carlton down at the Cryo Oval, and South and Geelong were into the four, and St Kilda had missed the finals again, despite being in the four since the end of round nine. During the season, every team except Carlton had been in the four at some point, but now it was finals time. The first semi-final would be Fitzroy versus Geelong, And the following week, a well-rested Essendon, with the bye and a week off, watching the first semi-final, would take on South Melbourne. The first semi-final took place on Saturday the 22nd of September. There were five special trains organised to leave Geelong to get their supporters to the MCG on time. In previous years, Geelong members had the unusual benefit of gaining admittance to any final by just showing their membership ticket and a train or boat ticket for the day even if Geelong weren't playing. This was a recognition of the harder time that Geelong supporters had in getting to games throughout the season. But this year, as their team was playing in the semi-final, only membership cards were required to get into the outer. Grandstand seats were available for one shilling and nine pence. Geelong had beaten Fitzroy twice in the season, but just by 10 and 5 points on each occasion. Geelong had an almost full list to draw on for the semi-final, except for wingman John Jockey-Jones, who was out with a bad shoulder. He was replaced by Jim Matheson, back for his first game since Round 16, where he had suffered a thigh injury. But the selectors made a dramatic change, which had unintended consequences. In a bombshell, they dropped Captain Bert Rankin, after some disappointing games in his usual position in the centre, and having played at full-back in the final game of the season in the win against Carlton. They assumed his brother Cliff would take over as captain, but Cliff refused to play, supporting his brother. That left Alf MacArthur to take over as captain in a very unsettled approach to the most important game of the season. Bert Rankin retired immediately as captain and player. The Herald cartoonist Wells had not picked up on the shock development of Cliff Rankin's refusal to play, and he had drawn the Geelong Black Cat again, with Bert Rankin hoping that the Cat would bring their team victory under his brother Cliff. Despite all the excitement in Geelong and their hopes of making their first final, it was a game dominated by Fitzroy. The Maroons were in front from the start, and an eight-goal third quarter ended any hope for the Geelong supporters. The game was noted more for its spite and violence, despite no players being reported. Monday's Herald, The Age and The Argus all called for a league inquiry into the crude and brutal exhibition. As described in the Arcus, Fitzroy had decided to target key forward Lloyd Hagger, which led to reprisals by Geelong players that escalated into a very unpleasant game. Fitzroy's Ern Elliott left the ground with a broken shoulder and Fred Williams had sprained his ankle. Perhaps the clearest comment on the game was the silence at the end. Nearly 60,000 people were at the MCG but as Fitzroy left the ground, there was barely a hand clap or a cheer. At the permanent umpire's committee meeting on the Wednesday following the game, the lack of action by any of the umpires was the main talking point. All umpires were suspended from the next game at least, pending a follow-up meeting on the following Wednesday, where they would be interviewed and asked to account for their actions, or more importantly, their lack of action. After all the turmoil and discussion about the bitter first semi-final and the league's decision to have a special meeting the following Wednesday, the football public realised there was another semi-final match to be played on Saturday. Essendon were taking on South Melbourne. The same olds had not played for two weeks due to the bye in the last round of the regular season, but having defeated South twice during the season, they had every confidence they would do so again. But South were up for the game, and after a close first half, Essendon had just a four-point lead, and things got tighter in the third quarter, where South trailed by just two points. But the final term belonged to South. With four goals to one, the Lakeside team had shown they were not just in the four to make up numbers. They were through to the final against Fitzroy, leaving Essendon relying on their top of the ladder right of challenge. The game was a much more sedate affair than the previous week it seemed that even the South and Essendon players realised there needed to be a winding back of the vigour shown in the previous semi-final. Umpire Alec Much was noted as having been very strict without overdoing it, and he was even rewarded with cheers as he left the ground at half-time and at the end of the game. South Melbourne would be taking on Fitzroy in the final. It was a great effort by South Melbourne under their new coach Charlie Panham, The Lakesiders were the 1922 Wooden Spooners, and now, as Essendon had done the previous year, they had risen to the final. Could they go all the way? Fitzroy were looking to defend their premiership, but they had to wait for the special meeting of the league, investigating the spiteful first semi-final, to know which players would be available for selection. They were already going to be without Ern Elliott and Fred Williams due to injury. The league met on the Wednesday night before the final with the press being denied access to the deliberations. First up at 7.30 were the umpires and permit committee who quizzed the officials about their lack of action. At the conclusion of this inquiry, the umpires, with the exception of goal umpire Bartlett, were told that the committee was satisfied with their explanations. Then the VFL delegates met until after midnight but the only decisions made were Bill Keane of Geelong was disqualified at the pleasure of the league for the unsatisfactory manner in which he had given his evidence. He would not play in the VFL again. Geelong's forward Lloyd Hagger and Fitzroy's James Atkinson were to appear in front of the league tribunal once Geelong had returned from their Sydney trip, meaning Atkinson could play for Fitzroy in the final against South. In their two games during the regular season, Fitzroy had won their home game by two points and South had won at their home by four points. Close results and no real guide to the outcome in this final. Interestingly, Old Boy in the Argus actually called this game the preliminary final, which is the first time I can recall seeing this term used in the press during this era. Usually it was just called the final. There were 55,000 people at the MCG to watch what was described as an excellent game, Fitzroy got out to an early lead, with a strong first quarter, and with a few minutes to go before half-time, they were 32 points ahead. But then South began to reel the Maroons back in. By early in the last quarter, South were only 11 points down, even with injuries to Roy Cazaley and Herb Sutton keeping them from their best games. But in the end, the Maroons won by two goals. South, 6 goals, 7.43, to Fitzroy, 7 goals, 13.55. While many observers were satisfied by the performance of umpire Alec Much, who had also officiated the second semi-final, South Melbourne's club secretary, likely McBrien, said, I honestly think that both Fitzroy and the South Melbourne players should be congratulated on keeping their heads while umpire Much was umpiring. In my 14 years of league experience, it is absolutely the worst umpired match I have ever set my eyes on. I congratulate Fitzroy on their display. End quote. The scene was set for another grand final, this time between Essendon and Fitzroy. Since the introduction of the amended Argus system in 1902, the team that finished on top of the ladder had the right to challenge if they lost either the semi-final or the final. In fact, there had been grand finals in most years except for 1906, 07, and 08, when Carlton won premierships without the need for a grand final, and 1911 and 1918, when Essendon and South were able to win the premierships without dropping a game in the final series. In the last 17 years, there had been 12 grand finals. For a season that had started out in one of the driest periods on record, prospects for the premiership game seemed in doubt on the Friday afternoon after a week of wet weather. The Friday Herald had a picture of the water-sodden MCG with the headline Water polo or football? with water reported to be six inches deep on many parts of the ground. And it turned out to be no football at all. The adverse weather committee met in the morning, and after inspecting the ground, the game was postponed. It was not the only event delayed. The Caulfield Guineas was rescheduled to the Monday, and it was a quiet day inside for most Melburnians. It was the first time a grand final had been delayed, but the 1918 second semi-final had also been postponed due to the weather, has had a small number of home and away rounds. But now, the grand final would clash with the Caulfield Cup, as it had in 1921 when Richmond won, and being held on the 20th of October, the 1923 grand final holds the record for the latest day in the year for a grand final, a record unlikely to be broken. While news of the postponement was shared by Telegram, Telephone and Telefriend, there were some country trains that had already departed, bringing some soon-to-be-disappointed spectators to Melbourne, where football, races and other events had all been cancelled. Perhaps they went to watch the Erra River in flood. There was an attempt to play the reserves grand final at the South Melbourne ground. Richmond were keen as they had already booked a trip to Tasmania for the following week, but Geelong had two of their players missing after learning of the postponement of the senior game, so this match and the Tasmanian trip would have to wait another week. Essendon's captain coach was Ruckman Sid Barker, a veteran player who had represented several clubs. His career began in 1906 at the VFA Essendon Club, then in 1908 he had played a season for Richmond in their first year in the VFL, but then it was back to the VFA with North Melbourne. The tumultuous events of 1921, when North disbanded in a wild plan to merge with Essendon, saw Barker move, with a number of other North players, to the same old mid-season, but when Essendon decided that Windy Hill would be their home ground and not Arden Street, the merger plan fell apart. However, Barker could not get a clearance to move back to the reformed North Melbourne, so he stayed an Essendon player, becoming captain coach in 1922. He would retire as a player at the end of 1924, although continued as coach before returning to North Melbourne in 1927, their third year in the VFL For nine games. While he may not have been a brilliant player, he was noted for good use of the ball and he was considered a fine leader, a sound judge of human nature and always got the best out of his players. He worked as a fireman and sadly died in 1930 at the Hoddle Street Station in Abbotsford, aged just 42. Fitzroy's captain was Gordon Rattray, a half-forward flanker who'd made his debut in 1917 playing six games, including a loss in the grand final, but missed the following two seasons having enlisted in the army and served in France where he suffered injuries from a poison gas attack near the end of the war. He returned to Australia in January 1919 and restarted his playing career that same year, winning the Fitzroy Best and Fairest in which he also won in 1921. Roy Cazaly credited Rattray with inventing the torpedo punt kick, and he was known as one of the longest kicks in the league, but also able to pass accurately. He was appointed captain in 1923 after the retirement of Chris Lethbridge. However, in 1924 he wanted to transfer to Melbourne, having been appointed coach, but because he lived in Fitzroy and the club would not give him a clearance to play, he would become the VFL's youngest non-playing coach. Coaching Melbourne to four wins. Then, in one of the most unusual selections for a finals game ever, he was selected by Fitzroy for their 1924 semi final game against Richmond. More about that next episode. In 1925, he moved to Brighton as playing coach and took them to two grand finals and had two stints coaching Fitzroy in 1928, where he played five games, and as non playing coach from 1937 to 1939. Fitzroy's coach for this grand final would once again be Vic Belcher. A premiership coach in his first year at Fitzroy in 1922, he was looking to collect two premierships as a coach to match the two that he'd won as a player for South Melbourne. He would coach the Maroons until 1924, then moving to Tasmania to take up one season as playing coach with the City Football Club in Launceston. He returned to coach Fitzroy in 1926 and 27 and then had a year as playing coach for East Brunswick in 1928. Having grown up in the Brunswick suburb, it may not be a total surprise when he also had a year as non-playing coach for Brunswick in the VFA in 1932. This was the first Grand Final after the retirement of umpire Jack Elder, who had umpired 10 Grand Finals up to 1922. The VFL would now have to look for a new Grand Final man in white to take over from the role owned by Elder, Over the last 15 grand finals, there had only been four different umpires. Jack Elder for 10, Arthur Norden who had three, and Harry Rawl and Jack McMurray Sr, who both umpired one match each. In 1923, the honour went to former Collingwood two-time premiership player Alex Much. Having played for Collingwood in 144 games from 1911 to 21, including premierships in 1917 and 1919, and runners-up in 1915-18, and he had debuted as an umpire this season. He would join fellow Collingwood player Lardy Tullock with the rare experience of winning a premiership match as well as umpiring one. He had umpired the second semi-final and the final game and been recognised as having done a good job after the strife of the first semi, but it is astonishing to note that this was his first year as umpire and he had only umpired seven games before the finals. The Herald expected Fitzroy to win, as did most of the expert opinions gathered from coaches and captains of other clubs. Essendon were in the weird situation of playing just their second game in six weeks, having had the bye in the last round of the season, and then been waiting two weeks after their semi-final due to the grand final being postponed. It was yet to be seen if the lack of playing would make them fresher or leave them behind a match-fit Fitzroy. Essendon had sprung a surprise selection, choosing Ruckman George Rawle at 33 years of age, the oldest player to make their debut, and also debuting in a grand final. He was the playing coach of the Essendon reserve side, and was one of the North Melbourne players that had made their way to Essendon, although he had started his career at the VFA Essendon team as well. Over 46,500 people were at the MCG for this grand final, The crowd down on previous years, perhaps because of the competition from the Caulfield Cup and the disruption to people's plans due to the postponement from the week before. Never again would a grand final be played so late in the year. The curtain raiser was the reserves game between Geelong and Richmond. Geelong had beaten Richmond in the second semi-final, but the Tigers had used their right of challenge to take on Geelong in this premiership match. And again, Geelong came out comfortable winners, 9 goals 12-60, to Richmond's five goals, ten forty. After all the drama about weather and ground condition the previous week, the grand final opened up under sunshine on a perfect surface, with only a little wind favouring the punt road end. Despite topping the ladder, Essendon had lost both games to Fitzroy in the regular season, giving the Maroon supporters hopes for another victory. Fitzroy had the win in the first quarter, but it was Essendon who got the first score of the day with Ruckman Norm Becton kicking a point in the opening two minutes. This was then followed by Essendon's champion full forward Greg Stockdale kicking the first goal for the day and his 67th for the season, a then VFL record. A great individual achievement, but the focus was on the game. Well, George Rawl was having a good first quarter, according to the Argus. He was slow, but busy. Hard, but fair. Jim Freak got Fitzroy's first goal. He was playing his 166th game after debuting in 1912 and had already kicked 40 goals this season before this game. He would get his second goal after the bell had rung to end the quarter, coolly waiting until umpire much cleared the Essendon players away before sending his place kick through the centre. Freak had seen his goal-kicking record of 66 in a season, held with Dick Lee, broken that quarter. But he had helped his team take the narrowest of lead with two goals. Fitzroy with three goals, three, twenty one, to Essendon, three goals, two, twenty. Essendon made a number of attacks in the second quarter, but these were only resulting in points. Then Fitzroy made their move with rover Clive Fergie, passing to Jim Freak, who scored another goal. Debutant George Rawl was playing very close attention to Fitzroy's ruckman, Goldie Collins. So much attention that Collins was awarded five free kicks in a row. But despite the free kicks, it was clear that Collins was not having his normal impact on the game. At half-time, Fitzroy had the lead in a close game, 5 goals 5-35, to Essendon 4 goals 10-34. Fitzroy were the first club to return to the ground after half-time. The Argus suggested that the Essendon players might have used the extra time being warned about the cost of missed opportunities given their inaccuracy in front of goal. The third term got off to a good start for Essendon, when centre-half forward Justin McCarthy scored his first goal and built a slim lead. Then, mature age debutant George Rawl had a shot but could only score another behind. However, the momentum was beginning to shift towards the same olds. Fitzroy were making every effort but not getting a chance to create goals. The third quarter ended with Essendon in the lead. Fitzroy were on five goals nine thirty-nine, behind Essendon on six goals 13-49. It was only a 10-point gap, but the Maroons had not kicked a goal since late in the second quarter. Yet Fitzroy were a talented and determined team who were used to winning. A goal to forward pocket Harold Parker reduced the gap to five points, then halfway through the last quarter it was just four points of difference. However, as the players began to tire, they started to make mistakes. With 10 minutes to go, Charles Hardy passed to Essendon's rover, Frank Maher. He moved quickly to snap another goal. The Dons had a 10-point lead again. There was time left for Fitzroy, and they did make desperate efforts to get the ball forward. But it was Essendon playing with confidence and looking like the winning team. The sealer came from half-forward George Shorten. Playing his 14th game in his first season of VFL football, he kicked his 8th and most important goal of his early career. The Dons had their premiership. Essendon, 8 goals 15-63, Fitzroy, 6 goals 10-46. 4 goals to 1 in the second half had won the game for the same olds. With spectators running onto the ground to celebrate Essendon's win, it took a group of police some time to create a path for the players to return to their crowded rooms. Amidst the chaos and cheers there were the traditional but welcome speeches of congratulations from Fitzroy's president, their coach and the Fitzroy captain, as well as Essendon officials congratulating the players on behalf of the club. Essendon's captain coach Sid Barker was presented with the match ball and after congratulating his players he thanked them for the gift and noted that he had a Wednesday league premiership ball, a VFA premiership ball, and now a VFL premiership ball. A truly successful coach and leader in the football world of this era. The players were taken to dinner at Carlions, known today as the Esplanade Hotel in St Kilda. After a drive around the St Kilda Esplanade, the Essendon players were then driven to Puckle Street in Essendon, arriving at interval time for the big picture theatres. The crowd came onto the street and cheered the players as they paraded up and down Puckle Street. The team had come home to Essendon to play in 1922, and now, just one year later, they had brought their fifth premiership home with them. The celebrations continued into the Sunday with a drive out to Lilydale, which must have been quite an excursion, and plenty more events were planned to mark the occasion and recognise the successful efforts by the players. In this time before radio was common. There were some interesting ways of sharing the news of the Premiership win. The Sporting Globe reported that the Herald building flew a red flag on its roof to signal an Essendon win. Then the Herald plane, yes, there was a Herald plane, having seen the red flag marking the Essendon's triumph, flew over the MCG and onwards to the Caulfield racecourse, packed on Caulfield Cup day, where the pilot shot off red flares to share the news of Essendon's victory with spectators. It seems the pilot then flew all over Melbourne, presumably sending off more red flares. Not sure what colour flares would have been used for a Fitzroy win, but still I think the AFL should look at reviving this tradition as part of the post grand final entertainments. In mid November, the league finally got around to hearing the cases from the first semi final, held on the twenty second of September, Nearly a month later, the players and officials gathered to address the cases referred by the league, given the umpires on the day made no reports. First up were Lloyd Hagger from Geelong and James Atkinson from Fitzroy. Were they trying to stand on each other's toes? Were there kicks between the two players aimed at ankles? Or, as the players both suggested, were they simply trying to stand in front of each other? The tribunal decided there was not sufficient evidence to take action. And Hagger and Lloyd were free to go. Then there was the incident between Geelong's Stan Thomas and Fitzroy's Jimmy Freak, who had been knocked out. Freak did not know who hit him. Thomas said that some part of his body had hit Freak, but it was not his fist. Again, the tribunal decided that the case could be dismissed. So despite the outrageous supporters on the day, the unanimous condemnation and calls for an investigation by all the newspapers that reported on the game and several league meetings, Bill Keane of Geelong was the only player suspended and the reason given was the manner in which he had given evidence, not any incident that occurred on the ground. Not sure if everybody was satisfied with this result, but the season was over and perhaps it would all be forgotten by the next year. There was much discussion again this year regarding adding a team to the VFL to make the competition 10 teams, removing the need for a bye each week. In October, the league received applications from Brunswick, Camberwell, Paran, North Melbourne, Footscray and Hawthorne. But, as in previous years, the league held back from admitting any additional club. The challenge of redrawing the districts in an acceptable manner for all clubs being one of the barriers. Also, adding to the difficulty was the need for a 75% majority of the delegates for any change. And just before we finish this episode, there have been some interesting what-if scenarios to do with grounds for VFL football in this early part of the 20th century. In 1920, there was a proposal to develop a football ground on the site of an old cycling velodrome at the Exhibition Gardens. Essendon's eventual move in 1922 to Winter Hill was a saga that saw them possibly playing at Arden Street, or even the suggestion of sharing Victoria Park with Collingwood. Now, in 1923, the VFL told Collingwood they would have to find a new home ground for their next season. The problem could be traced back to the decision in 1921 by the Ground Management Committee that membership tickets had to increase in price to seven shillings and sixpence. The league eventually agreed on the proviso that cricket club memberships of the same grounds were raised to 25 shillings but the collingwood city council pushed back and they would not enforce the increase for the collingwood cricket club the league was adamant if the cricket club membership did not increase the magpies would have to find a new home the sporting globe reported that there were arrangements for collingwood to play at the mcg which would have been 70 years before they started playing regularly at the G in the 1990s. In the end, the council would relent and Collingwood did not have to move. But it is a delightful what-if scenario. Would the Magpies have been the mighty club that they are if they had been forced out of Victoria Park in the early 1920s? And just to show that some things remain the same regardless of the era, especially players misbehaving on end-of-season trips, Three St Kilda players were sent home from their trip to Sydney, with further action pending by the St Kilda committee. We'll leave season 1923 there, and look forward to the next episode for 1924, where one of the foundation members of the VFL will leave the scene, but their name will be commemorated, so we still recall their contribution today. If you've enjoyed Grand Final History, please leave a review wherever you get your podcasts from. The more goals we kick, the easier it is for others to find the podcast. If you have any questions or you want to leave feedback, please email me at info at grandfinalhistory.com.au or check out the grandfinalhistory.com.au website or Facebook and Twitter for more Grand Final History.